You ever wonder, like, if you'd get along with your parents if you were the same age as them back when they were in school? Just a random, weird question. Interesting to think about, though. Obviously, the parents you know and the parents they were are different people, but there's also the fact that, you know, there's a pre-existing connection there which sort of changes the nature of the relationship, you know, being a child of them. So, <laughs> it's interesting to think about. It's the classic beginning of most fiction. What if? So, Bob Gale had that question. Uh, Bob Gale had worked on a few other uh, films. The only one that I'm really going to mention here that's relevant is Used Cars in 1941. It's actually two films, both of which he helped write and did some good work with. He was workshopping this idea for trying to do something based on that concept, and he ended up reaching out to Robert Zemeckis. Now, you've heard of Zemeckis, because you've probably seen Who Framed, Ro Who Framed Roger Rabbit, or Death Becomes Her, or Forrest Gump, or Contact, or Cast Away, and I'm, I'm not going to list the full list, but I mentioned all of those because each of those was substantial and significant in cinematography for some reason or another, either because the film was really well-selling, or because it pushed the tech forward, or because it helped launch certain actors' careers, etc., I'll be talking about that more in a moment, too. The funny thing, though, Zemeckis actually knew uh, this little-known guy named Spielberg from school. He was a huge admirer of Spielberg, and there is evidence to show that he was an admirer of Spielberg before Spielberg got big. In short, Zemeckis was probably, based on inference, talented and skilled enough to recognize the talent and skill that Spielberg would eventually show. So, they were like, hey... Zemeckis really wanted to make this work. Problem was, well, most of his films kind of bombed. They were, I mean, they weren't great uh, in terms of financial sales. They weren't terrible in terms of financial sales. They were just kind of there. Not, not the best of track records. He did, he did have that MCU thing. I've actually referenced this earlier this year, where people could recognize the talent and skill on display. He just didn't have the resume to back that up. So the only people who could vouch for him were people who knew him personally and actually had seen him work. God, that, just, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? I imagine several of you actually either personally or with someone you know can, can relate to that concept. I mean, how many times have you gone for a job interview and they're like, well, I mean, you seem good and you seem to know your stuff, but I see you only have, uh, you know, one year of experience with this. We want four years of experience. And it's like, anyways. <clears throat> So, none of the studios actually wanted to push this film forward, even Universal, which led to some problems, and so they finally just kind of shelved it. It's like, you know what, fine, whatever. Right about this time, uh, Diane Thomas, which... <sighs> Diane Thomas wrote a screenplay for a film that would eventually become Romancing the Stone. Now, if you haven't seen that film, I highly recommend you look into it. it. It's a good damn film. And it shows the kind of talent she had as a screenwriter. Now, you're probably thinking, had? Yeah, she died. It, it really sucks, because she died basically right after that, too. Which is horrible. And horrible. It's like, it's two completely separate layers of horrible. Which, it's in itself, is just kind of horrible to talk about. So I guess we're up to three, and we can keep layering out, but let's not inception this. The point is, she put together Romancing the Stone. Uh, Kirk Douglas bought the script and shopped it around. And Douglas decided to reach out to 
Zemeckis. Now you're probably thinking, why? He didn't have the resume. No, but he had the rep. Remember, especially in Hollywood, who you know is adamantly important. I've, I've, I've discussed this many times over many of the films we've been covering this year, how several of these films wouldn't have happened if not for the fact that people were connected in just the right ways. And I Knew a Guy ended up being how a film could get in the door. So, people knew Zemeckis. They knew he was talented. Douglas heard about that. Douglas decided to take the shot with him. And go figure, Romancing the Stone was a huge hit. This actually pretty much catapulted Kirk Douglas into stardom, as well as Danny DeVito and Kathleen Turner and Zemeckis. Now, because of this, Zemeckis now had exactly what he needed, a resume. He finally had a financial success, which he could shop around and say, hey, uh, about this old story idea I was pitching around a few years ago. Now, this is kind of the thing I love, and this is one of the reasons I like Zemeckis, because he could have gone to a lot of people who are more than willing to back and fund this. You know who he went to? Spielberg. Why? Well, I didn't really mention this, but he, Spielberg was actually on board with Back to the Future the first time around, when he was first shopping it around. In fact, he probably could have gotten the film made if he had just allowed Spielberg to go ahead and completely back and fund it. He didn't because he wanted to be able to sit on his own, you know, stand on his own two feet. He wanted to prove that Robert Zemeckis films could be a good thing. And he was right, obviously, given the, the track record that he has after this. So, he went to Spielberg, and Spielberg was like, I got a plan. It's called Amblin Entertainment. I wouldn't be surprised if most of you don't really remember that, but that was the company that Spielberg and his team put together to push out movies. And so Amblin was like, yeah, no, we got you. So uh, Steven Spielberg, Frank Marshall, and Kathleen Kennedy were the ones who, dis who actually picked this up, were the producers of it, and ended up uh, pushing the support into it. Yes, that Kathleen Kennedy. I don't want to start a Star Wars thing here. I just think it's interesting because a lot of people tend to forget how much of a history she has in with regards to filmmaking as a producer. Anywho, <clears throat> so, this then led to them workshopping this around a bit. Uh, Scheinberg got involved. He was a very, very big exec, and he actually was willing to fund and back this because, well, it was being pushed by Spielberg and Zemeckis, for God's sakes. But more to the point, he was fully on board, except, there, hang, hang on, hang on, a couple changes. The changes were really minor stuff, so minor, I'm not actually going to bore you with them. The one big one was the name. I've actually read about three separate accounts of this story, so I'm just going to go with the thing that fits all three accounts. He wanted to change the name to Spaceman from Pluto. Okay. Spielberg embarrassed him in some manner. Like I said, I've heard three different accounts of the specifics, but in some manner, Spielberg was like, <laughs> and Scheinberg backed down on it. So, no issues there. We're, we're back to being back to the future. Uh, they did, like I said, they uh, changed it to a car, they changed the nukes out, they cleaned up the image a bit, they got rid of the media pirates, they killed the assassination attempt, and now they just needed a cast. So first, of course, they, they're like, all right, we know who we really want for this film. Eric Stoltz! Actually, that's a lie. Uh, they actually did want Michael J. Fox first. Fox himself had actually been interested in the creation of the film while he was working on uh, his Wolfman film, I can't remember the name of right now, but... By the way, a lot of this probably sounds like I'm repeating information that you've already heard, and I do apologize, but you guys asked me to cover Back to the Future. It's a well-tread-on film. What do you want from me? 
<laughs> so Stoltz was like, yeah. And you remember a film that we will be covering in one, two, three, four, it looks like six weeks from now. I've already recorded my fit, my footage on RoboCop. Over in RoboCop, Mr. Weller, who plays, you know, Murphy, he's, he was very method and that caused issues on the sets. Now, as I will talk about then, as I have talked about then, the point is, uh, method acting can work, but also usually causes issues. Method acting is one of those things, it's, it's like, it's like mustard, right? You put a little mustard on something and, oh, it just, it, it adds to the flavor. It just puts a little bit of a bite about, you know, behind the other flavors, right? Now let's imagine you just gulp mustard on all over the place and now you've got an issue. And that's method acting. I could also probably say the same about most things in human society, but the fact remains, too much method acting causes issues, and that was something that Stoltz was causing. There was also the fact that Stoltz was, um, not good in the role. If you've seen Eric Stoltz, you'll know he's actually a good actor. But I've talked about this concept before. Some people are good actors within a boundary, and some people are good actors and they have range. In short, it takes a different type of actor to be able to do a huge variety of roles well, whereas there are plenty of actors who can do a few specific roles well. Sounds back? Stoltz did not have range. He, he just didn't know how to stretch out into the directions he needed to for the film, and it just wasn't working out. Right about now, Mr. Zemeck has had a bit of a crisis and a problem because well, because it was all falling apart on him. Uh, if you've seen interviews or watched any of the, the, the special special featurettes he talks about, you could just see in his eyes how much this had gotten to him at the time because he'd finally had his big shot after Romancing the Stone and he was finally going to workshop this film that he believed in. He really wanted to make this film. Not a franchise, by the way. We'll talk about that much later. This was intended to be a standalone. It was built to be a standalone. But he really really wanted to push this. It was a passion project, and it was falling apart in front of him. He was staring at the end of his career, and he really loved making films, so that's two giant, you know, in the chest for this whole thing. Thankfully, well, as I feel like I've already mentioned before, in Hollywood, it is who you know. Spielberg reached out and went to Scheinberg and was like, all right, look, uh, actually, no, I'm, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm right, right. He reached out to Scheinberg and he said, hey, listen, this sucks. The film's bombing. It's not going to work. We need to replace him, and that means we need to redo footage. This is what it's going to cost. This is how bad of a deal it is. Scheinberg himself is quoted as saying, um, if uh, WizKid Zemeckis and Hollywood legend Spielberg are both telling me something, I should probably listen to what they're saying. Although I've heard, I've also seen several versions of that quote. So either way, the point being, he was like, okay, 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 fine. Make it work, make it happen. So Spielberg reached out to Gary Goldberg, the guy who was in charge of the studio, who was producing Family Ties. And if you don't get the reference, Michael J. Fox was working on Family Ties at this point in time. In fact, Fox had been, the main reason Fox had said no is because he was a major star of the show at that point in time because of the fact that, I don't remember her name, was pregnant, and so she was she was not in as many episodes and not getting as much focus. So he kind of th this was kind of what pushed him into stardom. Actually, was that show his his presentation on Family Ties, and also this film. But I'll get to that in a second. 
So we need to work something out. Well, the good news is she was no longer pregnant. That was no longer an issue because they'd spent several months filming at this point. So Michael J. Fox's schedule was a little bit more available, but he was still on the show. So they were like, okay, let's hammer something out. He would come in and film night shoots, all the night stuff, after having filmed for the show during the day. And during the weekends, they would film the day stuff. They would also take most of the reusable footage they'd already captured and just keep using that. It's really, really minor stuff, but it is a very smart approach that they used. Rather than just tossing everything out the window, they went through and said, okay, what can we salvage? Mostly long shots. If uh, Probably the most obvious example, and you've probably seen pictures of this, is when they're doing a lot of the him driving in the distance kind of stuff, especially at the beginning of the film. Just It's relatively easy to just show the car driving along and there's someone in the car, and most people aren't going to tell that that's not Michael J. Fox, so... This was smart. This helped salvage the production. And once again, who you know actually made it work. Now, there's one last piece here. What we have is a lot of talented people pushing really hard to put out a passion project. You know what that can lead to? Great films that bomb. This is something that uh, looks like we actually haven't covered yet. But several of the other films we'll be covering... Well, no, it looks like only one film we'll be covering after this. The few films we've covered before this are good examples of excellent films that bombed. Princess Bride Effect, as I like to call it. This is not that. Because there is one thing that consistently has historically proven to make a film sell well. And that is proper support and marketing from the studio. So, this film was going to be coming out... uh, in like August or something like that, it, it was it was screwed. It wasn't going to get the support, it wasn't going to get the marketing. Then the actual executives saw it, and the test audiences saw it, and everyone loved it. And so they decided to go ahead and support it and push it, moved it up to a July 3rd slot, which is one of the big slots when it comes to film release. So they were looking, it, it had the, the perfect slot, it had the studio support, it had the marketing, it had the talent, it had the skill, and $362 million net, of course, proved that everyone was right about this one. This became a box office smash, which, again, launched several careers. This is arguably the film that really pushed Christopher Lloyd's career. While he had actually been in a few things before this, including Star Trek III, funnily enough, this is what really made that made him into a large-scale star. Funnily enough, he was, by some accounts, considering just pulling out of Hollywood in general and just going back to theater, because he was something of a theatrical actor, and he was damn good at it. But this kind of codified that one. And, of course, Michael J. Fox became a big-name star after this, and I could mention other stars whose careers kind of pushed forward after this one as well. You get the idea. So with all of that said and done, we now have Back to the Future. Let's talk about the film proper. Side note, any of you ever watch any of my lore runs? First of all, I'm sorry if you have, but second of all, you may notice that I have a tendency to pause the game to talk about something because I, I don't want to forget it and I want to point out detail or nuance or significance or whatever. You know, I, I, it's kind of my approach. It is very rare that I have a film, which I'm sitting down doing a rumination of, and I have to pause the film to finish jotting down my note because the film has already gotten to another thing I want to make a note on. In short, there's so much to talk about that I had to pause the film to catch up. And I'm already doing shorthand. 
Just three pages of notes here, by the way. So, <clears throat> uh, yeah, clocks. First thing we see is clocks, because it's a time travel film. Second thing we find out is that he's bankrupt. We also notice there was a fire at the mansion. Why do you think there was a fire at the mansion? Because there's two broad possibilities, which are also not mutually exclusive. One, an accident. One of the many accidents he has. As he will mention himself later in this film, Oh my God, something I made actually worked! Second possibility, insurance money. And you're probably thinking, oh my god, why would he commit insurance fraud just to get more money in order to fund his projects that he cares very much about after having sunk his entire family fortune into them? Gee, I wonder why he would do that. Of all the things that we could say about Doc Brown, and I do think he's a good person overall, I do, the fact is he's also rather monomaniac. He really fixates on things, and he does so to an extent that's kind of, well... Insane. <laughs> uh, insane's the wrong word. Let's go with crazy. This guy is crazy. Let's just be honest about that. No judgment, just statements of fact. This also, uh, it's also important to note that we have the thing about the missing plutonium, which we almost immediately see the plutonium case afterwards. But check this out. This is brilliant. Watch this. So as the camera's slowly panning over the well-done set and everything goes off at a time, we see the coffee machine, which is not working. You know, the automated coffee machine, so that's a failure. That's one failed invention. Then we see the toast, which is trying to pop the toast, and it's all burnt, and it's bouncy, and so that's a failure. Then we see the dog food. This is when it becomes really clear what's going on here, because the dog food machine seems to be a failure, too, until you realize, well, hang on. It put the food exactly where it needed to go, and it put the can where it needed to go. That's not a failure. That's doing exactly what it should be, and so are the previous two. What's missing? The human element. If he had been there, the coffee machine would have worked fine because he would have had the pot in place and ready to go. If he had been there, he would have already taken the bread out and thus there would be no you know, weak, old, super burnt bread in there. If he had been there, Einstein would have been eating the food and thus there wouldn't be a giant glop of it just sitting there in a pile. His inventions do work. It's just at first glance they seem like they don't. Now isn't that an appropriate metaphor for Doc Brown? Also, judging based on cover, blah, blah, blah. So Marty shows up, <laughs> the plutonium case thing mentions, as I pointed out. He does the speaker thing, which actually doesn't work that way. We also see a couple other bit of, of smart, uh, how do I phrase this? Smart set building, which is not something I get to comment on all that often. There's supplies, and half things are unpacked, and there's just materials all over the place. And you could tell it's just someone went through here in a frenzy, buying and using and building and making something. And, of course, then he uses the speaker and goes, and blows out the speaker. So, grats on that. We also find out from this a very small thing that he's really big into loud music. No judgment. I like loud music, too. But that does come up later. Twice. Also, all the clocks are 25 minutes slow. That one got me thinking. Why are all the clocks 25 minutes slow? If only there was some kind of reason that he was trying to test the ability to temporally distort something to a minor or localized degree before he actually invented a full-tilt time machine. Huh. Nah, that's total insanity. I mean, come on, he's been working on this how many years? So, <clears throat> Marty, this is actually funny, Marty needs to 
literally hitch a ride to get around. He, you know, again, no judgment. That's, there's nothing. It's not portrayed as a shameful thing. He's just he gets on his uh, skateboard, grabs onto the back of a car, and goes. Although, in fairness, what he's doing is actually quite dangerous if you don't know what you're doing. But he's obviously quite practiced at this. I only point that out because it's going to come up later. So do me a favor and remember that. We'll put a pin in that. I don't have any pins. Um, we'll put a sword in that. <laughs> okay, so here, maybe I can just like I'll leave it right here. That'll help me remember. <clears throat> so <laughs> he goes to school, and he finds out the the principal says that Doc Brown is a degenerate and a nutcase. I mean, of course, people would think that. First of all, the fire, but also think about how crazy this guy really is and how that's probably going to be perceived by normal people, especially in the 80s. So, no judgment there. He goes up, tries to perform for the band. Also, I, I do love the joke that Huey Lewis is rejecting his own song. That's hysterical. But Marty is rejected for being too loud. Nothing else, just for being too loud. And he takes that horribly. What uh, You should send in your tape. What if they don't like it? I, I just... I should have written down the whole quote. Because he has this whole quote. I can't believe I never caught this before. He has this whole quote. You know, I, 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 what if they don't like it? What if they think I'm no good? What if they say I can't cut it? You know, what if... I, I, I just... I don't think I could take that kind of rejection. <laughs> We also then see, he, he goes and he sees a beautiful, beautiful truck. It's a Toyota, of course. But what I happen to notice is that's a buck thirty-one a gallon for gas. Wow. We also get a flyer about a lightning strike that happened 30 years ago. And this is what I'm going to bring up the script. This is what I call a smart script. Or, a, uh, let me rewind. It is a smart script, but that's actually not what I want to talk about. This is a tight script. I want to explain the terminology there. A tight script is when there's not really any excess. Every bit of dialogue, every showcasing, everything happening has some relevance to the work. There's no, it's, it's, it's extremely lean meat, right? And there's dozens, if not hundreds, of tiny little details everywhere, every single one of which comes up in the future. Now, I'm going to do you guys a favor and not point out every single tiny little thing, but I'm going to point out quite a few as we go through, because there is a lot, a lot of establishment for this first section. It is very, very efficient in how quickly and how just nonstop it lays down the rules for everything. Even when he's driving into his home area and we see the Lion Estate thing, the signs, there's, there's debris and trash up next to them, and there's graffiti on it, which is absent in the future. But I will, again, uh, just add. So then, then he actually heads home, and there is an avalanche of evidence. Oh, by the way, then we see the guy who plays Biff. Of course I didn't write down his name. Why would I do that? Admittedly, I don't know him for much. Um, I've only really seen him in one other thing. Wing Commander! Wing commit anybody? No, okay, whatever. <clears throat> so, maybe the guy from Star Wars. So, uh, we meet Biff, and we then get an avalanche of evidence that everything is terrible, including the fact that I have to sneeze. Okay, we might have averted it. Crisis averted for now. I sp You didn't tell me there was a blind spot in that thing, is one of the things he points out. Why didn't you tell me there was a blind spot? 
I mean, I spilled beer all over myself. This is also smart exposition, by the way. This is, so this is why this is also a smart script. The script tre treats you like you're paying attention. There's lighthearted stuff, there's silly stuff, and adventure stuff. It appeals to a broad demographic. But if you're paying attention, there are layers to this film. And it is, it is a truly brilliant film, in my opinion. But I'm probably gushing a little bit too much, so please forgive me. You know, I, I spilled beer all over myself. He has, he has multiple things of peanut brittle just lying around all over the place. You know, in fact, he actually gets a bowl of peanut brittle. God, my teeth are just looking at that. And I don't have bad teeth. I do love peanut brittle, though. Although the peppermint bark, way better. So then we have the cake for Joey, who is not on parole. Uh, the guy's got a Burger King job, and Lorraine's got a giant thing of vodka. And, you know, I'm not going to go over all the details. All of the pieces are laid here. Again, we're still in the establishing part of the film. We're making sure everything's lined up so that when we see later and then further later, we can see the variance and how everything connects to itself. But I want to bring up the peanut brittle thing really quick because one of the points is that Lorraine is fat in the present. Now, I want to make this point really, really clear, speaking as someone who is fat. No judgment, okay? But... The point the movie itself is making is that she has deliberately let herself go. Not that she has, you know, genetic issues or that it's just she doesn't have time to exercise or the fact that actually getting good exercise is harder to do than it sounds or the fact that you have to tailor what kind of exercise you do to the specific body type you have and everyone's different about that and dieting requirements and all the other things that could come into that. No, the film's point is that she doesn't bother because why would she? Her own husband barely pays attention to her. He's watching TV the whole time she's expositing. <clears throat> she's sharing the story about what happened 30 years ago. Also, she has giant things of peanut brittle, but let's not get into that. I mean, I was about to say I have candy too, but actually I don't. I deliberately let myself run out of sweets in the house to prove that I don't need them in order to keep my morale up. Oh, God, kill me! Anyway, so having seen all of this, we have this avalanche just absolutely avalanche of, of evidence that everything's horrible. A couple other little tidbits here that are really awesome. I've never sat in a parked car with a boy. Much later. Uh, you think I haven't parked with boys before? <clears throat> also, passivity. This is a big point of the film. She is passive to the point of languishing. And it is portrayed very much as a bad thing, and frankly, it should be. There's nothing wrong with certain types of passivity. You know, it, it, pa being passive in general is not a bad thing. Being passive to an extreme, to the point where you just don't care, where you actually start to, well, let's call it what it is, rot, that ain't good. And so that is what's being portrayed here. She is rotting, because she just doesn't bother, because she has no reason to care. J don't, don't do, don't reach out, don't ask a boy out, just... Just let things happen. Things will happen. We find out about the date, the storm, the kiss, uh, the fact that he's a loser. Oh, yeah. I don't like to use that word because most of the time the word loser is used as a generic insult word, so you could just replace it with the word insult and it means the exact same thing. I want to be clear that I mean that very literally. George McFly is a loser. He is someone who has lost and continues to lose repeatedly. Trust me, I know what that feels like. Doing okay now. Also thanks to you guys. Fresh reminder, you are awesome. I actually had a bit of an issue just this morning. Which I'm, I'm not going to give you the details of it. I mean, honestly, nobody cares. But 
the point is it was an issue and I had trouble staying motivated to get up and exercise and do my morning routine. And I thought to myself the fact that I get to cover Back to the Future today. And while certainly this job does wear me down and it is a lot of work and a lot of effort, I get to cover Back to the Future today. I am not a loser. Not anymore. And it's good to know that. And it's because of you guys. So again, thank you. So, the DeLorean, I don't know how the hell he got in there. Like, if you think about the logistics, there's a lot of nitpicking we could do about this film, and I do mean a lot. This boils down to something I've talked about before in my Star Trek stuff about Enterprise. I've talked about this. It's about the suspension of disbelief. It's like a bubble, right? And after a certain point, the suspension just goes, and then it's like, okay, whatever. But the, what determines the bubble? Quality. I don't know if this is true for everyone, but I've noticed this is true in a lot of people. We're more willing to forgive things if the work is good. If it's nonsense, but enjoyable nonsense, then cool. We'll acknowledge the flaws, but we won't bang on about them. And for the same reason, I'm not going to nitpick a huge amount of things in this film, even though there are many, 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 many nitpicks I could bring up about this film. <clears throat> so... The DeLorean. Why a DeLorean? Oh, you should do it in style, right? No. Let's actually admit to the real reason why this is a DeLorean. Because DeLoreans are pieces of junk. No, seriously. They're cool. They're very cool. I wouldn't mind having a DeLorean shell with, like, a real car underneath it. But an actual DeLorean is a notoriously garbage car. Which, honestly, history probably wouldn't even remember except for this film. So that's two things in its favor. It gives it an iconic look, which was very unique at the time, especially. But it also gives us a car that breaks down all the time. This is used as a narrative device more than once. And normally I would complain about a, a car just not working being a narrative vehicle. No pun intended. But it's a DeLorean. They do the experiment, they do the first thing, they send them a minute and forward in time. They almost get hit by the car as it's coming back. That's Doc Brown in a nutshell. He is brilliant. Let's make that a fundamentally clear. But he's also, well, monomaniac. He gets so fixated on the moment and the things and the facts that he, he loses the rest. And that's why he nearly died to that moment. You'll also notice he was so certain in the fact that he wasn't going to, that he risked his life and Marty's life in order to prove his experiment correct. Very, very interesting how he lines all that up. Which is doubly interesting because what happens afterward is Christopher Lloyd earns his paycheck because he is so overjoyed. It works. It works. How long has he been working on this? I'll tell you, 30 years he's been trying to make this work. He's been working backwards from that idea and trying to make this sucker a reality for 30 years. Can you imagine working on something for 30 years? I almost can, because I've been working on something for 24. I'm, st I'm getting there. That would be the extent of my setting. I've been working on that for 24 years now. As of, uh, God, as of next week. Jeez. Wait, would that be... No, that'll be 25 years as of next week. Holy crap. I'm getting there, but I'm still not quite there. That is just having that explode and work and everything. Just I can't even imagine... The elation. But Lloyd does an excellent job of presenting that elation. 
This also leads to Michael J. Fox and his... He does this great thing. He just... Are you telling me you made a time machine out of a DeLorean? Like, I can't even crack my voice the way he does it. It's awesome. By the way, funny little factoid. Um, so there, it's, it's 121 in the morning. And he needed 1.21 gigawatts. Or gigawatts. It actually is a proper pronunciation under uh, Romance languages in the old older terms, so that's actually not an inaccurate way of phrasing it, although gigawatts is now more the standard. <clears throat> but what's really funny is he's gone for a minute and 21 seconds. Now, the, in the film, he's gone for one minute exactly, but if you watch the film, with, and I, I was just curious, so I got my stopwatch, and I'm like, alright. And I watched it for a bit, and yeah, no, he has actually gone one minute and 21 seconds. Cute. You can't tell me that's on accident. Not, not with how coincidental that particular... Uh, number is with regards to the franchise. Now, this is when things get interesting. Uh, he mentions he made a fake bomb for the Libyans. Boy, that's, that's a brilliant idea. He also... Well, he, he punches in November 5th, 1955. I'll be talking about the time travel stuff a little bit later. Let's be clear, though. This is a variant on Type 2 time travel. Single timeline, but malleable. I'll bring more of that up later, though. Let's just move on for right now. So, <laughs> we find out about the, the family fortune. We find out about the bonk on the head. Uh, he exposits about that. He talks about the farmland and breeding pine trees. We also He also mentions that he forgot the pluton put the plutonium in the car. He would have been stuck in the future. And, well, then he gets shot to death. The sad reality is this is how Doc Brown's life should have ended, right here. I'm not talking about destiny or anything like that. I'm just talking about this is a man who has been fixated on what is effectively an obsession and is not great about safety concerns. It is frankly astonishing he has survived this long. So him dying here as a tragic end to this story, that actually makes a lot of sense. And it's horrible, but there it is. This leads to face... Actually, hold up. Rewind. Rewind. I want to talk about Alan Silvestri. Well, you didn't think I was going to forget about him. You probably heard about Silvestri because you've probably seen an Adventures... Excuse me, Avengers film. No, not the old one. The new, the new stuff. The MCU stuff. And if you've heard the Avengers theme, then congratulations. You've heard Silvestri. He has done... Uh, like all of the music, like it's, it's it, I I thought about actually listing. I did write down the the big event. He did Avengers, Infinity War, and Endgame. But if you if you look at his filmography of how many films he's done music for, it's a big list, and there's some really good music in there. The man's fantastic. I would say he is probably one step below John Williams in my personal estimation, and part of the reason for that is like John Williams. He's got range. He can do quiet. He can do mysterious. He can do that just sort of light. You know what I'm pointing out, right? You can hear it right now under my terrible and loud voice. But he can also do big and bombastic. He can do tense and suspenseful. And he can do adventurous, almost an Indiana Jones-like approach. 
his inclusion to this film is probably the other puzzle piece I didn't mention of why this worked out so damned well. Because it is extremely iconic. I bet right now if I say, Back to the Future theme, you can hear it in your head right now. I bet money. I don't have any money on me. I bet one of my flossing sticks. There you go. You probably can't even see it. Hang on. Can't probably can't even see it because it's green, but it's here, I swear. Ah, shit. There you go. It's all yours. Phase two, the past. What we now have is an avalanche of evidence that he's in the past. I thought about writing them all down, but oh my god, there's so many. Instead, let's write down a few other things. First of all, my pines! Ha ha. Uh, the engine stalls because it's DeLorean. He puts the Walkman in there. Remember that for later. There is just an absolute smorgasbord of evidence that he's in the past. They completely redo the center square set in order to make it look like the 50s. And they do a very, very good job of it. One of those conceits is that Back to the Future kind of sits in that fictional realm of how much things change over time. Now you're probably thinking, well, things do change over time. I mean, they do, but as Back to the Future will show, they don't change that much. We are not at Back to the Future as of a few years ago, which is when Back to the Future 2 is set. So... So they go into this conceit, and in fact we see, let's see, one, two, three, four different eras of Hill Valley, and apparently this is just the nexus of alterations in, in, in aesthetics and time, but I'm okay with that. I'm okay with it because it serves as good visual storytelling, and it's used to help augment the aesthetic of the film, for lack of a better term. The Hill Valley Square is effectively... I'd say the second most visually iconic element of the Back to the Future franchise. The only thing that surpasses that is the machine itself, the DeLorean. It's probably sad that more people think of Back to the Future when they see a DeLorean than anything else, but whatever. I mean, even when it was in Gran Turismo, it's like, all right, Back to the Future car. Oh, it's a piece of crap. <laughs> uh, so, Marty isn't that smart. No offense, really. Actually, funny note, I was literally talking to Lore Reloaded when I mentioned So if you're watching this, Lore Reloaded, you're awesome. In the past, like a year ago. You're not watching this because you don't watch my stuff. Why don't you watch my stuff, Lore Reloaded? I thought we were friends. But Marty is not what I would call an intelligent person. He's got a decent amount of adaptability. And this is something that will be shown throughout all of the films. By the way, we're not covering all of them. We're just covering the first one because it's only what was requested, just as an FYI. I would love to cover two and three in the future, though, if, you know, hint, hint. <clears throat> of course, I'd love to cover the Pixar films in the future, too. What the hell do I know? But he thinks this is all a dream, and he does, he's actually seen a time machine in action, and he, and he knows, it, knows it was set to November 1955, and there's just all this stuff that he just does not catch up on. In fact, it takes him so long to catch up on what's going on that it won't be until several scenes from now that he finally starts to cognate it. I don't want to be too harsh, but I'm just pointing this out because I'm pretty sure someone like, say, Doc Brown, if he didn't know time travel was a thing, would be far more adaptable if he was suddenly time-traveled. Nevertheless, this is part of the appeal of the film, isn't it? No, seriously. I'm, I call Marty dumb, but that's because I'm calling myself dumb. Because... It would take a while for me to think about it as actually being real, too. It probably would the same as you, and most people. And now you get the point. This is perspective character. 
we are supposed to put ourselves into Marty's shoes as he's wigging out over all this. He sees his dad, and then he sees Biff, and then he sees the altercation between the two, and there's some excellent cinematography on display because Zemeckis knows what he's freaking doing. And then there's just this bit where he's just like staring at him, and he's like, what, what, what do you want? You're, you're George McFly. You're my dad, but you look like that. Actually, funny story. The real-life ages of the actors involved in these films is amusing to compare next to each other. I'm not going to go through the whole list, but there's several people who are literally older than their parents or slightly <laughs> younger than their children or whatever. It's, it's fun stuff. Anyways, moving on. <clears throat> so he's just he's freaking out about it. I don't understand. How could she be... I suppose this is a content I'm to bring up Crispin Glover's performance. Now, I'm actually not a huge Crispin Glover fan, but I will say this for him. He knows how to do... He knows how to throw himself into a role. He knows how to absolutely portray himself in a manner that is um, bonkers. And that can really add to the performance in several cases, including in this film. He does an excellent job of him in this film, and I don't want to sound dismissive of that. The issues that came up after this film we'll leave alone because those are after this film. Nevertheless, he, he adds quirks, like the, the slight shake that he does and the nervousness thing. I, I actually, when I myself portray a nervous character, I tend to do a similar thing. I might unconsciously have pulled that from Crispin Glover's performance in Back to the Future, because I've seen this film like 30 billion times. Slight exaggeration. It's a good way to portray someone who's just not sure what they're doing. Honestly, Barkley over on TNG, uh, Dwight Schultz, does a very similar thing. It's good. He does a good job with the role. But it takes him forever to really acknowledge what the heck is going on. We see Goldie Wilson... You know, the, the mayor from the future, who's going, excuse me, re-elect, re-elect Goldie Wilson. So he's already been mayor, and now he's trying to run for mayor again. There's all sorts of little stuff like this. This then leads him to being a paping Tom. Now, anybody who's told you anything about time travel will tell you that even minor alterations can lead to big things. In fact, there have been certain stories entirely devoted towards a time traveler deliberately changing as small a thing as possible in order to alter everything. Uh, we actually covered something like that earlier this year with Just Justice League, the Flashpoint Paradox. There's also a story about Extant, no, not my Extant, uh, the guy from from DC, doing, it was basically his last story. I'm not going to spoil it, but let's just say he alters things by, like, an absolutely minuscule degree, and the entirety of history has changed because he very, very, very carefully calculated that minute degree. Nevertheless... In reality land, not that time travel's real, nor would I admit such a thing in a public manner. In reality land, it's actually surprisingly easy to conceive of the idea of, of going back in history and interacting with the past and then coming forward with no real issues. If I went back to the past right now and just visited my mom, I'd say, hi, mom. She's like, hi. And I just sat and chatted with her a bit, and then I left. There is an extremely high chance that I would have not altered history by that in any manner that's even perceivable. It would have been such a minute change, and it's a, there's a term for that, it's like an enclosed change. The changes may affect this period, but after that, they have no impact, right? So it's just tied off with a little bow, and we're done. That's been the film to this point. You know, he runs around, he, uh, he knocks over the pines, that doesn't really change anything. Uh, he goes to the town, he meets his dad, you know, he's just like, what's going on? Nothing really altered until he follows George. And this is when we actually have a major alteration, our first significant alteration to the timeline. Because George is peeping on Lorraine, 
I'm not even going to comment on that. And plummets. Oh, no. And Neil gets ripped by car. And, and Marty, without even thinking about it, rushes to save his dad. Because, of course, he freaking does. He does love his dad, after all. And boom, he's hit by a car. And now this is actually really crucial. You might think the hit is really minor because the car was going very slow. And you're absolutely right. But if you notice, when Marty is tumbling back, his head hits the asphalt hard. That's what knocks him out, the head wound. So then he's knocked out for nine hours. This leads to the first of the, you know, oh, I had a dream and blah, 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 blah. But then I wake up and it's all real scenes that each of the Back to the Futures will do. This one, of course, works very, very well. It's also our first real introduction to Lorraine. If you were paying attention at the beginning of the film, you will see how Lorraine is completely different than the way she was portrayed earlier. It's practically a different character, which is, of course, the point. First of all, she is flirty as hell, and I just gotta say really quick, that's Leah Thompson. I mean... That's Leah Thompson, okay? I, I, I hate to, to point out that there is yet another actress in, in cinematography that I find attractive, but she is a very attractive woman, so I'm just saying, I could see. But she's being really flirty. She sits right... It, it, trust me, the, the body language, the, the way she moves, the way she talks, the way she, she interacts with them, the fact that she took off his freaking pants. For no reason. There's no reason given for that. She just took off his pants. But my favorite indication of how much of a... Uh, hormone explosion that she is right now, you can go and quote me on that, is that there's this brilliant shot, and I never actually saw this before until I was analyzing this film. There's this brilliant shot as she's like, oh no, put your pants back on, and she throws it at him, and he's standing there in his underwear for just a few seconds. But as the film is shot on him, there's a mirror right here where we see her rush off. She turns around, looks at him, and does this really big, like, open-mouth grin, like, and then she goes back, you know, and she even does the, like, she's gasping for breath just for a moment looking at him, and then she turns around and rushes out the door. It's it's less than a second. But, yeah, we can see the, the kind of thing that, that she's thinking. And, no judgment, a hot guy has ended up in her room. Okay, cool. You know, whatever. She's also someone who seems, it, 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 the implication is given that she's been rather cloistered up until now. That her family does not approve of her going out and doing things, which probably sounds familiar if you remember the early parts of the film. And you see how this dovetails beautifully. This is why I say this is a smart script and a tight script, despite the massive nitpicks I can bring up. And there are so many. Because so much of this stuff pays off. I'm not sure there's a single Chekhov's gun that doesn't get fired in this film. There's probably at least one or two. And I'm not sure there's any point at which something is wasted with regards to how it's presented. We then get a bit of him at the dinner table, which is mostly just a comedy section of him screwing up everything because he just cannot resist constantly uh, s s spilling stuff about the past. It just keeps it out, and he just he, and he catches himself briefly, but he always catches himself after he says it. This is part of that not smart thing. After all, he's just talking normally. He's just reacting, and it doesn't occur to him that he needs to chong a giant mask in front of him and portray a character rather than just being himself. It hasn't even occurred to him yet properly, even though he is currently interacting with both his dad and his mom, who has the hots for him, which leads to her literally, you know, she's just she's staring at him and kind of leans forward. He could stay here, he could stay in my room, hand on, hand on leg, and he jumps up. Again, Thompson. 
but no, I, I, I do actually understand. It's just that I, in putting myself out of the moment, all I have to do is envision that being my own mother. And I have, honestly, I think his reaction is reserved because my reaction would be something along the lines of, whoa, whoa, you know, that's a giant spider has landed on my leg. And you know how I feel about spiders. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm catapulted backwards out of that one. Holy crap. So. Uh, yeah, he gets out of there and he's like, okay, I, I gotta find my doc. I gotta find Doc Brown. Let's go, let's go, let's go find Doc Brown. Um, <laughs> I just gotta say, really quick, he nails it. Like, I, I know it's such a cliche thing to, to praise Christopher Lloyd for being an amazing actor, but God, he nails it. He absolutely nails it in this film. I'm not even sure I could picture anyone else doing even an approximation of how good a job he does here. That is how iconic this is to him and his performance. Or, more accurately, how his performance is iconic to this. Let's be frank. We would not have Back to the Future as it is without Christopher Lloyd. Anyways, I'm, I'm talking too much. Let's move on. Let's move on. Um, so he goes to Lloyd. Uh, he goes to the doc which says a lot about how much he trusts him. We get the impression in the early parts of the film he's, his, his principal's terrible. His parents are not really all that connected to him. He doesn't really have any friends to speak of. He's just got his girlfriend, and he's got the doc. And that's about it as far as an actual support network. This is shown very strongly throughout the course of this film, and the connection between the two is actually kind of awesome. Originally, they wanted to write some backstory stuff about why it happened, but they decided ultimately, you know what, screw it. He's a cool guy that everyone warned him away from, so he decided naturally to check him up. And he found out that he was, in fact, a cool guy. Bam. Cool uncle uh, uh, connection, right? That's it's effectively how it's presented. And that's cool, and I'm with that. Not that I am a cool uncle. I aspire to be as cool of an uncle as Christopher Lloyd is someday. But either way, then we have the cold reading section. Let's go ahead and make this very clear. I in no way believe that he's picking up any stray thoughts from Marty. I just want to be really clear about that. First of all... The whole point of the gag is that it doesn't work. Second of all, what he is doing is effectively cold reading, which, if you've studied that at all, doesn't, it, it's, it's a fraud. It doesn't actually work. Third, and most importantly, it has no real relevance for the overall point, the big character thematic point, which is going to be coming up in just a moment. Because he rushes off, and he's like, no, no, oh yeah, who's the president? Ronald Reagan. Oh yeah, sure, Reagan's president, right? I mean, that'd be like saying Trump could ever become president. Okay, that sounds like a political joke, and I guess it kind of is. But I bring that up to give you a little bit of modern perspective, because there was a point in history, no joke, when the idea of Ronald Reagan, who was a big-time actor at the time, becoming a politician and actually getting all the way up to the presidency was considered nonsense. There is no possible way that that could ever happen. And I wanted to give you that perspective so you understand that, because that's why Lloyd's reaction is so extreme. Also, Reaganomics. Moving on. I'm not going to get onto a ton of discussion about Reaganomics, but I am going to get into a discussion is, is he, he, just, he tells him about the flux capacitor story, which, remember, he heard just a bit ago. From his perspective, it's been about a day since he heard that story, so it's fresh in his mind. The doc listens to him on that one. God, I love his expression so much. He just, he's got this expression of, like, like, you're actually, I, I cannot act nearly as well as Lloyd did. I wish I could act that well. But he's got that shock plus stunned plus just a little bit of, wait. And then for the second time in this film, we see Christopher Lloyd portray joy. His jubilation, I finally invent something that actually 
works. Doc Brown is a brilliant person, but he is a failed scientist. However, two big points here. First of all, this is why the earlier point about the, the mind-reading machine should be a failure, because if it was a success, it would contract this, contradict this whole point of him being a failure. And why is Doc Brown being a failure so important? Because the central theme of the entire film is that failure is not the end. That's not the, the end of the story or the end of the bullet point or whatever. You fail. That's life. Then, you keep trying. You keep working. And eventually, you're sitting here discussing Back to the Future on your YouTube show. You probably see why this film resonates with me so well. God, I've been doing this nine years now. Um, so his, his jubilation. And you notice, that's his first thought. His second thought, we got to get you home. Because he's a good kid. <laughs> Calling Christopher Lloyd a good kid. He's a good person. He is someone who actually wants to help. So this then leads to the third act now. So now we have our two dilemmas, okay? First dilemma. We need to get you back. Second dilemma, which is established in this scene, we need to correct the, alter the major alteration you made to the timeline. Those two things are now dilemmas, and they're the two... Uh, obstacles, the encounters you have to solve in order to win win the game. Very very tight script. By the way, gigawatts! Uh, 1.21 gigawatts! I, I can't even do it. I can't get my voice as high as he does it. Not without yelling. Uh, <laughs> but this is when we find out about his attention to detail. How many of you caught the fact that much earlier when he showed a picture to prove that he was from the future, he said, oh, it's a terrible Photoshop. He's missing his hair. How many of you caught that? Now, I caught that two times ago, as in at, at this time and then the previous time. So I guess that's like one and a half, whatever. The time before this, I actually caught that for the first time. And, of course, it makes perfect sense because that's why he asks for the photograph, and that's when he deduces, aha, you're vanishing. This is another good time to talk about time travel, probably the best time to talk about time travel. Here's the time travel rules for the film, and I'm not joking or memeing when I say this. Go with it. Just, Just go with it. Now, if you've paid attention to my show at all, you'll know I tend to rail against that exact mentality. The just-go-with-it mindset. Sometimes that leads to action movie logic. Sometimes that leads to nonsensical writing or because plot. And let's be clear, there is a lot of action movie logic, nonsensical writing, and because plot in this film. Again, I'm a lot more tolerant because of the quality of the work. But I have to point this out because even as the film itself tries to describe its time travel, it fails miserably. There is absolutely no explanation that even comes close to lining up to explain why exactly the photograph slowly fades away. No, sorry. The photo stays the same, but the actual pictures on the photograph slowly fade away bit by bit. That, no, that's the GM giving you a bone. That's what that is. <laughs> Everything else actually lines up pretty neatly. If we eject the photograph, that's the one thing. If we eject the photograph, everything else is pretty pretty tightly type 2 time travel with only the, the time traveler's exemption clause, which is in most time travel stories anyway, so that's not really a big deal. Anyways. So... I'm looking at my notes here. I'm trying to figure out where I'm at in my notes. Oh, yeah, so Strickland is a terrible principal. 
he also is totally, he just, he gets on George for being a slacker and completely ignores the bullies who are kicking him. I know this is the 50s and all, and Lord knows I would see that kind of attitude in the 90s when I was still going to school. But it still makes me want to slug him as hard as I physically can, and I can hit really hard. <laughs> this then leads to Marty going for the most obvious direct route, stupid possible answer he possibly can without thinking about anything in any way, shape, or form. This naturally fails miserably because Marty is not that smart. Again, not, not complaining, it's just true. He is not known for his intellect or his planning skills. He's known for, oh crap, I'm about to be run over, let me deal with this very quickly. He'd be a good rogue, to put it into such terminology. <clears throat> Actually, that's not quite true in D&D terms, because a rogue has tons and tons of skills which rely on their int, and of course they can talk the way around things, and frankly, Marty is none of those things. So, um, maybe a monk might be a little bit better? I'm not sure what D&D... There was the acrobat, you remember the acrobat class? <laughs> of course you don't, because it's a stupid class, but anyway. Uh, he's agile, you know? He's a very specific type of rogue who has an int of eight. So... <laughs> Actually, that lines up, because then he would have hardly any skill points. Um, he, 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 this fails miserably, and so it's like, okay, look, let's try a little bit harder. This is when that theme comes up again very, very powerfully. It's already come up like three or four times. I've already mentioned the theme to you. You know, failure, keep trying. His dad is sitting there writing stories in school. You ever done that? Actually, a lot of the stories I have written, I actually wrote in school all the way up to the college range. And I also wrote, used to write at work a whole bunch, too. I still have all that stuff. It's in like an air-compressed thing because the paper in there is 20 years old at this point. But the fact of the matter is, you know, you ever do that? So he's writing. Oh, get out of town. I didn't know you were creative. Oh, no, I don't let other people read my stuff. I, I, I don't, I mean, I couldn't take that, you know, how, I forget how he phrases it. I'm jumping around trying to remember. You know what I'm talking about. He doesn't want the rejection. He doesn't want to deal with how other people would think of his creative work. And I bet money you know what that feels like. I know I do. Being hesitant about sharing something you've made because, oh. do you know I've actually uh, written a book? I've never published it and I never will. And you're probably thinking, oh, share it. No. <laughs> and this is why. I don't think I could take that. Actually, there's another reason why, too. But I don't think I could take that. Not unless I had the confidence and backing in order to be willing to accept the failure. Because it probably would be a failure, because I don't think I'm a good writer. So I feel that. You know, I feel that idea of just, no, I'm just going to stay over here and write things for me. <laughs> and like the, the three of my friends have actually read it. Then Biff shows up. Biff outright uh, paws on her. I'm, I'm not sure how to put that any more deli delicately, but what he's doing is effectively very crude, so screw it. And you'll notice how Marty makes no hesitation about standing up to defend his mother. Of course he doesn't. Then he is pushed, and in only two pushes, he decides to take on someone who is substantially bigger than him, stronger than him, and has his own goons. I mean... That lines up. That is Marty in a nutshell right there. I don't really have much else to add to that, other than the fact that he has to figure out how to make this happen with his dad. If only he had, like, a cassette player that he accidentally brought with him into the future that he left in the car. Oh, wait! 
I am Darth Vader from the planet Vulcan. So, he is still, you'll notice, being really direct and obvious in his approach. It's just, he's trying to actually think his way from point A to point B, rather than just walking from point A to point B. So he's still being super obvious, and he's lucky this worked. I wonder why he doesn't just admit that he's a time traveler like that. It's science fiction too, right? Then again, this is the 50s, which is 10 years before people, it was said that people wouldn't be able to accept aliens from another planet as a fictional point in Star Trek. So maybe maybe this is just erring on the safety here side here. I don't know. But either way, there's this great scene where George goes in. Milk. Chocolate. Funk. Getting up his courage. Normally it's alcohol, but here's milk chocolate. I love it. Okay. You're my density. Notice that in this scene, he stumbles through it. He does. But you notice there is a legitimate connection there. It's, it's minute. But there is something there. He reaches out to her, and she actually seems rather pleased by that reaching out to her. And, well, let's just say there's something to be said for being adorkable. Because that's what George is. He is adorkable. Fortunately, this then leads immediately to the big action sequence. There's only three action sequences in this film. Beginning, middle, end. This is the middle one. This is also when we get that amazing music again. Yes! It's in your head, right? Can't you hear it? Da, 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 da. Now you can. You're welcome. You'll notice, by the way, this is when Dragon Quest effect is really obvious in this film. In the off chance you don't look at my Lorium's page on lorerunner.com, there's a whole list of phrases there, and one of them is Dragon Quest Effect. What it refers to is the idea of something that is seemingly lighthearted or innocent or cartoony or for children, but if you're paying attention, it's not. There's actually very serious, dramatic, dark, mature storytelling going on, like Dragon Quest. Like if you, seriously, you look at Dragon Quest for a second, you see da 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 and you see these light, cute, you know, chibi characters, and they're all smiling. It's like, oh, okay. No, no, those are dark games. Which leads me to this film. We've already had sexual molestation, and uh, Libyan terrorists, and stealing plutonium. We've had uh, a completely negligent school system. We've had a dilapidated and broken household, along with actual physical and mental and emotional abuse. Now we have attempted murder several times during this action sequence, which is portrayed as this big, ha you know, Indiana Jones things. Uh, Biff tries to straight-up kill Marty, at least twice, depending on how you define that. Yeah. So, he gets away, and Lorraine insists she's going to follow him. And this then leads to a very interesting scene, which I want you to do me a favor and remember. Doc is listening to himself and the very end of the tape over and over again. Do me a favor and remember that, okay? Then he speechifies, you can't know about the future. And he goes ahead and builds the model, which is this astonishingly complex model that then fails and lights on fire because he was only fixated on the model, not the stuff around the model. There's that monomania again. Lorraine tracks him down and asks him to ask her out. She still hasn't shifted out of that passive mindset. She's still doing it from that perspective. But at the same time, she is breaching the boundaries a little bit because she has actively sought him out in this manner. 
And I only point that out because it shows how both the previous several scenes have shown how both George and her are changing their mentality very slightly thanks to their interactions with him. The point is, the longer that Marty is back here and interacting with the past, the more he is changing things. I mean, that just makes sense, right? Ignoring the big alteration, he is now actively interacting with people in ways that are going to, during their developmental years, that are going to alter how they're going to deal with the future. Sense make. Naturally, we have to have a zany scheme of, by the way, more Dragon Quest effect. He has to pretend to be molesting his mother in order to get his dad to defeat him in order to save his mom. Yep, no, we're moving on. This is... I mentioned the time travel earlier. This is probably when I wish this was type 1 time travel. At least at least for this film. I'm okay with them kind of mucking with the time timeline a little bit. But my, I guess my point is that there's a lot of parts of this film where it likes to have Marty do something, usually very minor or small, which kind of feels like, aha, that's why that happens in the future. But the problem is we already see demonstrably that the future is fundamentally different after he interacts with the past. This is clearly type 2 time travel, one malleable timeline. Yeah, I know, I know. You're going to bring up Back to the Future 2 and Back to the Future 3. We're ignoring those for right now. As this standalone film, which we're ruminating on, it's the one malleable timeline. So... It's almost a shame how often they wink at the camera and be like, hey, this thing has been inspired by him, and this thing was inspired by him. There's even this bit as he's leaving the dance. Marty, what a nice name. If only we could name our kid that in a few years. <laughs> but remember, he was already named Marty in the original version of the timeline when none of this happened. So it doesn't actually come from anywhere. It's just a neat little thing. I don't know. It's, it's a very minor point. It's probably the only thing I don't like about Back to the Future. Is, is that aspect of time travel, and the fact that it's just kind of go with it. I know I said I wouldn't nitpick too much. I'm trying not to. <laughs> so, Lorraine, turns out, drinks and smokes. <laughs> Once again, this lines up neatly with what we find out in the future, where she drinks and smokes and has let herself go because she just doesn't care anymore. In fact, she's a straight-up alcoholic in the future, if you're paying attention to the giant vodka bottle she was drinking from. It is labeled vodka, too. I, I checked it. And now we see now we see the puzzle approach. Things are just lining into place very neatly here. We got the zany scheme. We got the dry throat. Now Biff shows up. Marty's relieved. Oh, thank God, I don't have to pretend to be molesting my mother anymore. Whew! I mean, that is Leah Thompson. Oh, wait, damn, I accidentally had sex with my own mother. I better go back and stop myself. Ah, oh, crap, I joined in an orgy with my mother and myself. I better go back and stop myself. Oh, crap. Sorry, reference. Some people will get that. Uh, Biff shows up. Biff. Uh, this is when Biff is a disgusting human being. This is also probably the most overtly dark thing in the film, because he is straight up attempting to rape. Uh, her. And it's it, how far he would have gotten in that is, of course, debatable. But Leah Thompson's portrayal as she says, George, George, please help me, please. Like the helpless stutter and the, the, the quaver, quiver, the quavering of her voice. Quavering? Uh, quivering? Hmm. Wavering. How, how much her voice is wavering as she's quivering back there is just really sells just how t actually scary and actually terrifying this is. You'll notice the music for this se sequence has nothing adventurous about it at all. 
This is legitimately tense, dangerous music playing here, and it should be. Sylvester is still awesome. In my experience, this is of course true mostly in fiction, but this is also true in real life. When something really bad happens to you, when you're in a crunch, when you're in a legitimately dangerous situation and things have gone from bad to actually bad, one of two things tends to happen. You either rise up to the occasion and meet it and deal with it, and usually win, or you crumble. You are crushed beneath it and you wilt and waver away. George McFly proves the kind of person he is because when he's at his worst, he slugs Biff as hard as he possibly can. I could nitpick the punch, let's not go into that. Biff is, of course, drunk and, you know, didn't see it coming and George has got the arms. I don't know. Point being, he proves his quality there. So everything's lined up perfectly, right? Well, no, because apparently they still need to kiss. This has always confused me, and actually, I mentioned it's a tight script and a smart script. I do have to complain about one thing, because then they have the actual dance sequence, which is actually completely unnecessary for the film, and it's mostly just there to have go, Johnny, go, go, go. Johnny, be good. Now, it's a good song, and he does a good job of it, but it is, oh, and also Earth Angel. But for the most part, that sequence of the film could be ejected, and very little would need to be changed. Until we get to Back to the Future 2, of course. But remember, that wasn't even something anyone was considering at this point. So this is the closest thing to filler. It's like, it's not even the victory lap. It's like the fake-out fake, fake out villain after the main villain. Oh, no, Marty's going to vanish. And then George comes back and is like, no, plunk, this is my date, piss off. And that leads to him being completely fine, because that's apparently the exact moment in which the two finally fall in love and decide to have children, including him, and blah, 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 blah. I, I don't want to complain too much. It is a decent sequence. It just feels completely unnecessary for the course of the film. Which leads to one dilemma down, one to go. This is also effectively when Doc realizes the truth. He's got that letter, and, he, and then Marty's like, I gotta tell you about it, and blah, blah, blah. And that, that lines up a few things. Now, the buildup of this finale is wonderful. I love a good finale. I love a good climax of a film. And I, I would actually list this among some of my favorite climaxes in film history, right up there with Return of the King and the original Star Wars A New Hope. And I'm sure I can think of another one that's not a geek one if you give me a few minutes. Um, the end of Godfather. There you go. There's a good example of that. Actually, it's not the end of Godfather. It's the him being baptized scene. That's a good, that's a good climax of a film. There are, there's a huge amount of build-up to it, and the music just doesn't really seem to stop escalating. And, you know, we've got to tell the doc the truth, but then he doesn't, he's running out of time, and then, uh, the cable breaks, and then he's, he's got to go up to fix it, and then the car breaks down because it's a DeLorean, and then the doc almost falls, and then the car is late now because the alarm goes off, and then the cable can't reach because it hits the thing, and he's got to go down as the car is an approach, and then he connects the car, and it hits the thing, and the music stops. And for a solid, I, I counted, 40 seconds to the, to the number, there's just silence. The storm has stopped. The music has stopped. All you hear is the wind and the crackle on the wire. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant build-up and climax. Then Marty proves that he's not smart. I hate to point that out one more time, but he decides to go back 10 minutes before Doc was shot in order to try and save his life. Okay, sure. I know he doesn't want to go back too far. 
he certainly understood at this point the dangers of time travel. But you can give yourself an hour, dude. Sure enough, the fact that he gives himself ten minutes means he is too late. He is. He fails. Notice that they show us uh, the action sequence, although it's not fully run through. And I've always wondered this. What happened to the Libyans? Like, they, they're in a Volkswagen van which runs into a kiosk, and then they just vanish from the narrative forever. They, are, they never come back. Wait, huh? Anyways. <clears throat> Doc Brown. This is, this is good. Doc Brown. He's got the bulletproof vest. Why? Well, then he pulls out the letter. He taped back together. It's actually another prop if you pay very, very, very close attention to it. Again, I'm not going to nitpick that. I could nitpick the fact that his bulletproof vest shouldn't be capable of doing what it does either, but again, let's not nitpick, because what's relevant is why did he do that? After all his speechifying, after all his preaching, why? Earlier in the film, right about when he was bribing the cop... Yeah, I caught that too, by the way. He mentions, you know, I don't want that responsibility. Marty's answer is actually a good one. Here's a letter. Don't open it for 30 years. You know what Doc Brown's answer is? I can't do that. He doesn't say it that way. But he could not resist. He believes he could not resist the idea of going ahead and reading it in advance, knowing what it is he was going to write down. So he doesn't want that responsibility and he doesn't want that weight hanging over them because he can't help but be curious about the future. What was his original plan? He was going to go to the future, right? What's his plan at the end of the film? He goes to the future. He wants to know where things are going. See life beyond my years, right? Why is it he's re-watching the VHS at the end of it earlier in the film? You remember that? I pointed it out and I asked you to remember it. All of this points to someone whose insatiable curiosity, the hunger for that kind of knowledge, is something that he can't bear, and he does not have the discipline or free will to resist, as is shown because he does, in fact, rebuild the letter and read it. This is fully in character, and I think it's actually one of the subtler and more brilliant character points of the entire film. So, we see the ending. The mother is supportive of the girlfriend. Dave works at the office, although still not at the home. Linda is no longer passive. The parents are loving. He's got a truck. Uh, the house is actually in decent order. His mother's skinnier, by the way, and not an alcoholic. His dad has just finally sold a successful book. I like that point. You know why? Because it means he failed. It means over the last 30 years, he was unsuccessful in his attempts in order to sell a book, and he has only now succeeded because he kept trying. Because he didn't let the failure stop him. It's good stuff. It's really, really, really good stuff. I love, I love this film. Then it ends on what is effectively a gag. Rhodes, we're not going, you know, he comes back, and, ah, oh, we got to help your kids. Now, this leads immediately into Back to the Future 2, right? Well, Yes. As I will discuss if we ever get to that, but as I've already mentioned before, there was no Back to the Future 2 in the minds of anybody when they were making this film. Remember, this film almost didn't get made like eight separate times. And this was Zemeckis' passion project along with, uh, Pages? Wait, hang on. That's Pale, right? Gale! Gale, God. Along with Gale. Gale and Zemeckis, this was their passion project. 
they really wanted to push this out and there was a lot of uncertainty a lot of hesitation and there were problems on the set and they had to replace the main character and just all of these things happened they were not thinking about franchising just like star wars wasn't when they made a new hope it's just the massive success of these incredible works led to a franchise in the future and appropriately enough and I don't want to talk too much about it, but Back to the Future 2 would do exactly what Empire Strikes Back did. It looks at what was before and says, okay, let's use that as a blueprint. So none of Back to the Future was planned, but the reason it ties so neatly into one is because they built it off of one, the foundation of it. And that's what you do when you weren't planning to make a franchise, but you end up making a franchise. <sighs> it was a treat going back through this one. It really was. Uh, this is actually the last film I'm recording this year from my perspective, because I like to work from, like, worst to best. That's one of the reasons I do it at, so out of order. And ending on this, this has been amazing. Now, you guys have got a few more films coming up, uh, Transformers, Princess Bride, Robocop, DMT. But I hope, as ever and as always, you've enjoyed my thoughts, guys. See you next year.